Welcome to Penny Talks, brought to you thanks to Seed Goff, who deliver you affordable to performance, same performance, half the price. Check them out at www.seedgoff.com and try them today. Thank you for pressing play. On today's show, we have a participant in this week's ISPS World Invitational Tournament on the Challenge Tour at Galgorm Castle, professional golfer Rebecca Codd. But first, roll it there, Roisin. I mean, it, listen, we talking about practice. Joe Brawley told us the production line was finished in Kerry. Well, Joe Brawley, what did he get at? Son of Donovan is the left cornerback. He hits it. He hits it. It's over the bar. Oh, holy Moses. It's all on this. Round and What a finish. Here it comes. Oh, wow. In your life have you seen anything like that? Thank you for pressing play, folks. On today's show, we have Irish Australian, former Australian Ladies Tour player, 14 plus years on Ladies European Tour, Rebecca Codd. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How are you today? Very good, thank you. Hazel Cavanaugh was on the show last week, and I'm assuming you know each other from tour. Yeah, we do. Um, I'm very good friends with Hazel. Um, I've known her for a long time now. So you're on tour for 14 years. Would you have played with Hazel much, or would you have crossed paths much? or? Yeah, I played a, a lot of golf with Hazel, um, more so in the professional ranks than in the amateur stuff. I, I w- wasn't really playing um, that much amateur stuff in, in Ireland, so I would have only come across Hazel a few times. Um, but when I turned pro um, and playing on the Ladies European Tour, um, played a lot of golf and we got, I got to know her better and we're really good friends now. For people listening, hope go back and listen to the Hazel Cavan episode first of all. But Hazel kind of double jobbed and she never really got um, downtime. So she'd be on tour for a week or two weeks and then go back in full time teaching mode. Yeah. But how did you would say fund yourself through fourteen plus years on tour? Well, I suppose I was quite fortunate. Um, when I first turned pro, um, I had a very good finish in the uh, Australian Open. I finished, I think it was fifth, something like that and got a really um, decent check. So that kind of started things off for me. And then the grants came about through um, the Team Ireland um, and I got them for a good few years. And then some other you know, sponsorship from other companies along the way. So I always had a bit of backing. Um, I probably only in the last few years of playing on tour that I started to lose that. And that's when things became a little bit tougher. Um, but basically, yeah, I always had a little bit of money behind me. Um, not a whole lot, but it was enough to fund the year, which took the pressure off of results, you know, and making checks. And I think when you don't have that kind of pressure, it does make a difference to your year. So I went into a bit with Gary Hurley in terms of how important it is in terms of funding. And I, I do like to dig, dig a bit deeper into the why. So like, just to give the listeners an idea, what do you have to fund? Well, I always had a caddy. Now, I know Hazel talked about, you know, she couldn't afford to, to, to pay for a caddy. Um, so I was paying, you know, between, say, 600, 700 euros a week on a caddy. I mean, that's a big expense. Christ, I should have gone a big caddy then, didn't I? <laughs> so, you know, and I, I do tell people, you know, that I, that I teach or that I play programs with, because I, I get asked that question a lot. And I do say, you know, there's only one person guaranteed to make money when you're playing golf, and that's your caddy. You know, as a player, you, not only are you paying for a caddy, you've got your hotels, um, you've got car hires, whatever it may be, you, food. You know, and it's really important um, that you eat well. 
and that you have a good bed, you know, and you shouldn't skimp on, on, on that side of things. So we're, we're rewinding a small bit. So from, from looking into things and trying to prepare in a very Irish way for this chat, right? Yeah. It seems you spend your time between Australia, where you turn pro, and amateur careers predominantly Australia, and here. So can you describe maybe the how? So how did you get into golf in the first place? Well, I, I got into golf quite late, I think, compared to now. Compared to the Maguires. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, even I look at my own daughter. I mean, she's only six and she's already starting to play a bit of golf. I didn't actually take it up till I was about 12. Um, but I became good very quick. And my, I, I basically got into it because my dad played golf and I just went out with him one day and liked it and continued on from there. And that was in Australia? That was in Australia, yeah. So what part of Australia are you from originally? Um, Adelaide, I was born in Adelaide, yeah, and lived there for about, I think it was 15, 15 years, 16 years, something like that. The first 15 or 16 years of life are off and on? Or well, not, it's a strange one. So my, my dad is Irish and my mum's English and they met and married in Australia and had me. But when I was six weeks old, they moved to Ireland. Okay. And I was Great here. move. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I was here till I was five. And then, you know, they had the recession in the 80s. And my mom and dad went back to Australia for work reasons. Um, and then my sister was born, sorry, my sister was born in Ireland. But she lives in Australia. Okay. And I was born in Australia and live in Ireland. So a bit mixed up there. Um, but yeah, I am, so I've kind of been back and forth and then I came back when I think I was 21 or 22 and I've been living here since then. Very good. So if you can describe, let's say, I don't know, you, you played most of your amateur career in Australia. So yeah. maybe with comparison of stories with Hazel and, and the other likes, can you compare maybe your amateur career and how that went in Australia? Because I can see like there's big wins from 97 to 2002 of what I would, like I don't know the background of these events, yeah. but like they're... They are, you know, the, you were the South Australian State Team 2002, winner of the South Australian Ladies Amateur Championship in 2000. So, like, they're big titles. Yeah. So, can you describe maybe how you went through the ranks in Australia? Yeah, I mean, the, the system in Australia is very good. And it was it was really good even back, you know, God, that's going back. A couple back. Of years ago. Yeah, a couple of years ago. <laughs> You've been very kind. Um, but, yeah, so a very good system. And I think it's got even better like now when I see um, the girls coming through now like they're really dominating in the professional ranks like Hannah Green winning major this year um, and they've kind of really um, brought it say when I was an amateur they looked after you really well as an amateur and then when you turn pro you're kind of forgotten about but now it's completely different you know they're nurturing you the whole way through um, until you kind of get even when you're well established they're still looking after you and um, when you're a pro so I, I think I was really fortunate in that respect because I got to go to places like the Australian Institute of Sport and things like that. So I got to go, go to camps and stuff at a young age. So I learned a lot growing up. My, my understanding of the amateur setup in Ireland is that it's greatly funded by Sport Ireland mm -hmm. and the GUI. Um, but how would you describe the facilities, let's say the resources in Australia, maybe compare them to here maybe? From what I can see, like when I go, say, going around playing in different courses and what it, I, I feel like practice facilities are lacking in Ireland. I don't think golf clubs put enough um, money or emphasis into, into having good facilities. 
it's more so you know it's the the course um whereas in australia most golf courses you go to their facilities are brilliant like you know you have um top of the range pitching areas you know you've got two putting greens that you know and i I think as a kid that makes a big difference because you if you've got good facilities you're really developing your game at an early age but you know there's a lot of good players that didn't have good facilities that have come true but i think it i think it does make a, a difference overall though if you have good facilities so turn pro why what was the the reason was there a compelling event that did you say okay i'm going to turn pro now i hated school i i wasn't very good at it um and i remember when i was 16 i just said to my parents you know what i'm actually not going back and they were weren't too happy about it but i said look i just don't like it and um i said i want to concentrate on my golf and so from from the age of 16 I just really knuckled down and tried to get as good as I could um and then I was 20 I think I was 22 when I turned pro um and I basically I I think I had achieved quite a lot as an amateur and I was happy with what, what I had done and I just thought the next level from there was was to turn pro and obviously I wanted to start making some money from it as well. <laughs> yeah, that would help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you turned pro, uh, where did you start off first? It wasn't Ladies European Tour straight away. No, so. um, I started off, so I played a few events um, in Australia, which is the Australian Masters, Australian Open, and, and like I said, I did quite well starting out. And then I went to Japan for, for a season, for a year. I had um, conditional status over there. Um, it's a little bit different over there so when you have conditional status you basically have to Monday qualify for events okay. um, and then they also have a, like what they called a step up tour so a satellite tour from the main tour and I played on that as well as working in a country club um, on the weeks off as well which was it was it was a great experience like I, I it probably hardened me up quite a bit um, you can imagine being in your 21 22 going to japan not speaking a word of japanese and and um and they don't speak english either really do they they do but they're very shy they don't they they're kind of they don't want to make a mistake so they won't try and speak english but they can because they learn it the whole way through school so they can speak quite a bit of english um but unfortunately when i was there i learned a little bit of japanese but i i wish i had of maybe done some night classes or something like that and I could have you know been a bit more fluent in it but um, it was it was a great experience um I don't know if it was the best thing for my my golf at that period like I maybe I would have been better off going to to Europe or to America but I don't know you know what made you go to Japan I had some Japanese friends that convinced me and the money um is is brilliant in Japan. I mean, it's the equivalent of like the LPGA. Um, so I suppose the, the dollar signs kind of brought me there, um, but I didn't realize how difficult it was gonna be. You know, it's different, completely different way of living, different lifestyle and, um, you know, you either do it their way or no way. So, but like I said, it made me, you know, probably toughened me up 
difficult day. Yeah, I actually watched a video uh, yesterday. Eric Anders Lang did like a tour of Japan, mm -hmm. and he had um, an American LPGH fledgling tour pro, and she made the same choice to go to Japan. Yeah. And her experience, and obviously it's this year, um, was that ladies' golf in Japan is way bigger than men's golf. Was it the same when you, when you were there a couple years ago? Oh, yeah. The, the women's side of things is huge. Like, the, I mean, the following they have is incredible. Like, if you're, if you're, say, top 10, top 20 player in Japan, I mean, you have a huge fan base. Like it's so well supported. I mean, the magazines—it's all play like lady players in the golf magazines. It's just until you, unless you're actually there and you experience it, it's it's quite phenomenal, really. I have to take the podcast on tour. <laughs> right, so you're on tour. You're in Japan. Next step was Ladies European Tour. Yeah. Was that when you got to a level? You're kind of done with the busing and the trains in Japan, and you were like, yeah. next step for me is Europe. Yeah. So I I I came to Ireland and I, I thought well okay I've got a year of nothing basically I've got nothing to play in uh, what am I going to do because the last thing I want to do is go to tour school at the end of the year and not be playing any competitive golf so I heard about the Telia tour in, in Sweden um, and at the time it was a, a really well run satellite tour so I mean there wasn't great prize fund but there was loads of events to play in so I, I did that for the year and then went to tour school um, at the end of, of that season. And got through the first time? Yeah, got through first time. Um, I'm glad I didn't have to do it anymore. I mean, it's a, for a pro, it's a, it's, it really is, it's an awful experience. Like it's pressure, it's a strange kind of pressure, you know? And it, it yeah, definitely wouldn't like to do it again. <laughs> so is that why you stayed in the top 70 every year? <laughs> yeah, so I didn't want to go, go back. back. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't know. I, I Probably, yeah. <laughs> so being in the top 70 means very high level consistency, very good consistency in terms of your results over the years and to date. So all rosy in the garden. Was there any struggle along the way or? Um, yeah, there was. <laughs> I was always quite a boring um, kind of player. Always, up, you know, I always kept my card, and always had, you know, a few top tens every year or whatever. But um, I think it was two thousand and ten. I can't remember exactly the year, but I just I played um, a small event in Australia, in in Sydney, and I just hit it. I was actually doing quite well in in the final round. Um, we had quite a decent following on the day, and I just hit a terrible. Um, sandwich I completely chunked it um like literally five yards in front of me type of thing and, and um I just kind of had a breakdown like I couldn't I went I finished the round I was struggling to get the ball in the air it was just horrible to watch and so that was I say the beginning of 2010 and then for the whole year I just had this every time I'd get over the ball this kind of, I guess it, I, the, maybe the best way of describing it is like a darts player that can't actually, you release. know, release the dart. I was like, I don't want to hit it, kind of thing, you know. And I'd step over the ball, and this fear would would um, come over me. But I somehow I managed to play a season. I think it was probably because I I just try and miss fairways, which sounds crazy, right? But it doesn't. I hit chip shots and wherever I can, yeah. I will put. 
<laughs> but it but it, it it had gone into all of my game basically apart from say off of a tee or if I had a fluffy lie if I was in the rough I could didn't bother me but as soon as she gave me a tight lie I just break down didn't want to hit the shot um, but once so I, I think I got through the year from trying to just miss fairways which is like thinking back on it sounds reverse psychology oh, yeah like well I knew if I did that I could hit a green do you know mm. it was that kind of of thing and like you say I putted a good bit you know unless unless I was in the rough I could chip it then um, but my bunker play I've always been a really good bunker play so I was hoping I'd actually hit into if I was missing a green I was hoping it was going into a bunker yeah. type of thing I knew I'd get up and down then um, but yeah I managed to keep my card that year and I worked my way through it. Um, I I um, worked with some sports psychologists, um, Jamie Edwards. I worked with Jamie, and he he helped me with processes to to try and overcome it and get out of it. And and then after that point, then I I I um I played. You know, I didn't play with that fear anymore. I could actually step up and hit a shot, but I still struggled with the the chipping and pitching. That still still kind of haunted me it was something that didn't really come i did, didn't get rid of it basically ever or did you overcome it eventually or um not until i met tig really um and i did some some short game stuff with tig and then um he kind of just just changed my release pattern so just it's also basically just breaking it all down and, and starting from scratch again and and, um, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I can do this now. And I persisted with it. Um, and a good story, with, after doing some work with Tyg, um, I played um, nine holes in Roganstown with Porig. These are the Harringtons we're talking about. Yes, Porig yeah? okay. and also with uh, Dr. Bob Rotella. So not a bad... Not a bad four-ball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I, um, I remember the first hole. So you can imagine, like, I've, I've, you know, I've read Borbatella's books and obviously, you know, Pori is a phenomenal player. So I was feeling a little bit out of place in this group um, and I missed the green and I'm, like, 10 yards short of the green, whatever, five yards short of the green, and I'm walking up going, oh, God. Starts, you know, the sweat start. Am I gonna, you know, I'm gonna fluff this, or am I gonna blade it through the green? And, and I was like, okay, I'm stupid, Rebecca. You know, you've changed your release pattern. Let's do what, what I've been working on. Fabulous chip to like a foot. I nearly hold it. And I think from that point on, then I just kind of gained a bit of confidence, and it, it's it's really um, made a difference. The only thing is, I wish I had have got it about. <laughs> six or eight years ago but anyway that's that's life so just to give a bit of context to people listening it wasn't rock up to Ty Carrington and one lesson you're fixed no like what was the timeline like from first meeting Ty to that day on the course with the four ball was that a month was it six months yeah it was probably about four or six weeks okay and that's me working on it you know it's not just throwing a few balls down that's putting in a few hours work working on it how many golf balls do you think estimating did you have to hit to make it more natural that you weren't thinking about a release pattern anymore uh well it, well 
a lot because it's only probably I mean it's probably taken me a couple of years to not actually think about what I'm doing um, and that's the thing um, that I try and say to any any amateurs that I teach is that you know because they want the quick fix and they want their problems to be solved in an hour and they don't realize that it, it actually takes hours of training before something becomes a natural instinct mm -hmm. um, and that's the hardest thing when you're coaching trying to get that through to people it's a behavior like Gary Hurley yeah. talked about behavior and on course and yeah. psychologically but that's more as well behavior you're changing your behavior around the go the ball or addressing the ball so yeah like smoking or like gambling or like changing your chipping it's yeah. a long process exactly it is like once you're trying to change a habit i mean it doesn't happen overnight we're getting personal yeah you're married to a caddy yes i know nothing about it. <laughs> so tell us a bit about uh, being married to a caddy shane is he's a wexford man um he he's a PG, he did his training in Rosslare Golf Club, so he's a PGA pro. Um, he wasn't always a caddy. Uh, we met through a mutual friend, and he then caddied for me for three years. So that's how we got into into caddying. Um, and then after the three years, then I was like, I said to him, "You fired him." Basically, yeah, <laughs> right. but in a nice way. Not not because he was doing a bad job or anything, but. We're just spending too much time together, you know. You're just eating, sleeping, golf. I mean, we go back to the hotel, and you're like, "What can you talk about?" There's not, you know, you've you've How experienced it. Yeah, exactly. You've experienced <laughs> yeah. everything that each each other have done. So, um, I was like, I think you know, he can go and get a bag and earn a bit of money from someone else, and um, and then we're apart a bit rather than doing twenty four seven. And I think it was a really good decision. Um, because obviously we've been together a long time now, and um, and then like, I have someone to come back to then in the evening and give out about my game or my caddy or whatever it may be. I read now it's an article from two thousand fifteen that um, you brought your daughter Kate, who was two at the time, mm -hmm. on tour with you. Yeah. And you have a, another little boy now. Yeah, Liam. Liam, who's. So Kate's six and Liam's two. Yeah. Do you still bring them around and travelling around? Or how does that work with Shane caddying for someone maybe and you being on tour? How does that well, work? Well, I, I haven't played a tour event, um, I think, for like four or five years. Yeah. So I I played um, a seat, well, say half a season um, with, with Kate um, coming to a few of the events. But the logistics of it, it's so hard, you know, like there's no... which. <clears throat> used to drive me crazy because you think like it's a ladies tour you'd actually have childcare facilities but we don't sounds like a no-brainer yeah <laughs> but like if you play on the men's European tour there's a crash every week yeah. you know for the wives yeah I saw that in the hinge I was yeah. like is that for patrons or is that for players but it's for players yeah. yeah so the wives can go off and shop or watch the golf you know but for so I found it hard because obviously I'd have to pay for someone to come with me um, to look after Kate and then it just becomes it just becomes too expensive it, um, for the prize money that we're playing for um, it just doesn't work uh, and that that's basically why I, I stopped playing because it just does you know financially it doesn't work and now with Liam to two children um, it you know it's even harder again but I've been playing um, some of the PGA Pro-Ams and... Shooting 62, so yeah? 
Not in the PGA, perhaps. <laughs> um, not quite there yet. But um, no, I, I enjoy bringing them. You know, I was in Karandu up in the north there on uh, last uh, Friday and Saturday, um, and they came with me. And so it was a little bit of a break. Um, is it Ballygally? It was beautiful on the on the that Causeway Coast. Mm-hmm. So it was really it's nice to have them there and and play a bit of competitive golf at the same time. Getting back to ladies golf, and the more I read about ladies golf, the players' backgrounds, I'm I'm searching for stories, and I want to learn more and get more and more interested. The, the more I'm reading into it, because the stories are really great. Um, like the strength of the ladies' game in, in this country is quite strong, I think, from top to Hayes and yourself, and even. Um, the amount of, of ladies playing the game but the amateur scene is also quite strong with the Maguire's turn pro with the living happy up north Paul Grant and the Hint ladies team is winning all around them as well which is great uh, but I'm I'm looking for those stories so I'm trawling and scrolling and trying to find out as much as I can because I'm genuinely interested what's your opinion on the the core of the ladies game either amateur professional especially with let's say the 2020 project on the go as well yeah I, I mean I think it's growing all the time um, I mean the hardest part for obviously um, with with girls coming through is trying to keep them playing you know they reach that kind of 13 14 years of age and then it can either go either way um, but I think you know with the the 2020 it's a great idea and I hope that it works but I think, like you know, um, it's very like it's not coveraged enough. Women's sport in general is just not coveraged enough, and I suppose the media play a part in that. You know, because even with this campaign, it's still very hard to find the, the that kind of coverage. Like I mean, um, that the Japanese player Shinobu. Shibuno, I think. Shibuno. She, I'll Google it again. <laughs> <laughs> she. Um, you know, she wins the, the British Open, but I mean, was it in our national new press? You know, well, I don't think I was on the radio. So I guess I think it's a great concept. Whether it will actually come tr- true or is another thing. Yeah, uh, and it's the same, like the likes of you and me, people in the game yeah. who live the game, uh, look for the stories, but. I suppose the whole concept is that the, the story goes out to the world so yeah. people don't have to find it. So, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. We shouldn't have to go looking for it. It should be there. And unfortunately, it's not It's not there yet. And there are hopefully some boys, girls, women, fellas listening who are looking, looking to get better at golf. Maybe they're on their girls team or boys team, interpros, college teams, uh, or people like me looking to make their club team. I'll try to get four cards in first. What advice would you have for them just to get better? To get better, get some good coaching and, you know, um, do a bit of research. Um, I always did that. I always, um, you know, whether it, it would be for someone, um, a sports psych, psychologist or um, if it was a golf coach, I always did a bit of research to see who was around me, you know, um, other players maybe that had had some success with with people um so do you know it doesn't at any level you know it doesn't have to be the elite but find someone that you're you're comfortable with and commit to it you know don't expect that quick fix you know commit to getting some good coaching um 
and and you need to I suppose attack it from all angles you know it's not just your golf it's your fitness it's your nutrition it's all of that kind of stuff now you know if you're not doing that now you're so far behind everybody else we're here in the Harrington Golf Academy in, in Swords, so I've gone from one end of the M50 with Hazel in Impact Golf <laughs> and on the other side. So you met Tyke on tour and he started the hips basically around chipping and pitching. So how did you come back in working in the Harrington Golf Academy with Tyke then? Um, well, after do, doing a bit of work with, with Tyke, I mean, I had started teaching um, and I just had, con basically I had contacted Tyke because I'd seen some of the stuff he had been doing and I had a chat with him and I, I went up um, and uh, drove up and sat down over a coffee and just asked him a few questions, took, took a few notes and we kind of just kicked it off from there and then we said right let's let's take this a bit, bit more serious and we formed the Harrington Golf Academy and the two of us have been working towards you know we're trying to I guess um, changed a little bit of the way people um, see golf coaching basically you know rather than being on a particular way of swinging we're, we're, we're basing it a bit more on the biomechanics and physics side of things definitely people ask me at work oh, who, do you want, who, who should I go coach they don't know um, and you think in the millennial world you google it and you know yeah. but it's still word of mouth more powerful so I do recommend the likes of Tig or, or Cullum or Hazel and um, but like I call Tig Mr. TPI you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. we're both Mr. TPI so like what what does that level of so the biomechanics bring to coaching for you oh I well I, I was fortunate enough that um, <clears throat> I worked for quite a few years with Ryan Lumsden who um, he works with a lot of the national teams he's a biomechanist is that how you say it? <laughs> and he um, he he works with like the Belgium Golf Association, all, all of the the top Finnish. Uh, he's with the Australian Institute of Sport. He's based in Adelaide, actually, in Australia. Um, and I learned a lot from him, just basically on how the body works. Uh, you know how important posture is, um, injury prevention, um, just through the biomechanic stuff. Being able, being able to see how somebody's body might be breaking down. Um, so in the future, what kind of issues they're going to have. Um, and then Tig, he, he was very fortunate as well to spend time in TPI and learn um, from you know Greg Rose and, and, and the guys there in TPI. So I think the two of us combined with the stuff that I've picked up and what he has, we have a lot to offer. No, it's great stuff and something I can't get enough of. Um, so we'll definitely get you back on the show <laughs> in a future date. What does the next couple of weeks look like in the diary of, of Rebecca Codd? Um, well, I'm playing uh, Pro-Am in Kilkey Castle on Friday. And then I'm off to Gorm in for the World Invitational. Very nice. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to, to get a, an invite from Modest Golf, which is brilliant. Good man, um, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we get to meet him next week. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, I, I, my expectations aren't really, you know, they're not high. I haven't been playing competitive golf for a long time. I've put a little bit of work in leading up to this. 
Um, but I'm just really looking forward to getting out and, and playing a bit of competitive golf, basically. Brilliant. Don't take my approach. It's not damage control from the first tee. That's, that's my <laughs> approach. I have a quick, quick fire Q&A with everyone who comes on the podcast. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. Right. What would your walk-on song be? Well, you're going to laugh at this because <laughs> Tiger always says, I'm too much like Mary Poppins. And so recently, um, I've been listening to The Bitches Back by Elton John to try and get a bit of uh, that bitch into me, do you know? Pepe near step. Yeah. <laughs> uh, gym or pizza? Uh, pizza. Hat, visor or bucket hat? Hat. Happy Gilmore or Tin Cup? Happy Gilmore. Guinness or Heineken? Guinness. Le Hinch or Port Marnock? Uh, I'll go with Le Hinch because I haven't played Port Marnock. That's 6-1 Port Marnock. <laughs> uh, walk or cart? Um, walk. Win the Avian Championship or win the British Open? British Open. Would you rather, I'd change this one up now for Ladies Golf, right? Yeah. Would you rather drive it like Anne Van Damme or be as fit as Jean-Claude Van Damme? Drive it like Anne Van Damme for certain. Instagram or Twitter? Uh, Twitter because I'm not on Instagram. You have to change that. <laughs> yeah. Play or practice? Uh, the old me would have been practice, but the new me would be play. <laughs> Thanks for joining the show and best of luck in the ISPS World Invitational. Thank you very much. To close out each show, I have a segment for all of you, the listeners. So I posted a question on at Paddy underscore golf on Instagram and Twitter, which was, what is your favorite golf shot to hit? So thanks a million to all of you who got involved. I'll pick a couple of my favorites here. At Johnny Ireland, hitting a pitching wedge from middle of the fairway into the center of the green. On a rare occasion, it comes off. I would be quite the same. That would also be some of my favorites when they do actually hit the green. At underscore Harry O.D. underscore a low sniping hook. So Harry, I don't know if that would be one of my favorites. Maybe if I need to hit one when I'm cutting around a rake of trees and carrying house or something. But yeah, thanks folks for getting involved. Thank you all for listening. Hit the show a follow. Rate and review it if that's your style. Most of all, please share the show with your family and friends. We're going to have some great reviews and listen numbers. So let's keep that going. Thanks for pressing play until we teed up again soon. I'm Paddy.